Section 31 of The Natural History, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Natural History, Volume 2, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 31. Book 9, Chapter 38. Eels. Eels live eight years. They are able to survive out of water as much as six days, when a northeast wind blows, but when the south wind prevails, not so many. In winter they cannot live if they are in very shallow water, nor yet if the water is troubled. Hence it is that they are taken, more especially, about the rising of the Vergiliae, when the two rivers are mostly in a turbid state. These animals seek their food at night. They are the only fish, the bodies of which, when dead, do not float upon the surface. There is a lake called Banacus, in the territory of Verona in Italy, through which the river, Minis the river Mincius flows. At the part of it whence this river issues, once a year, and mostly in the month of October, the lake is troubled, evidently by the constellations of autumn, and the eels are heaped together by the waves, and rolled on by them in such astonishing multitudes that single masses of them, containing more than a thousand in number, are often taken in the chambers, which are formed in the bed of the river for that purpose. Chapter 39. The Morena. The Morena brings forth every month, while all the other fishes spawn only at stated periods. The eggs of this fish increase with the greatest rapidity. It is a vulgar belief that the Morena comes on shore, and is there impregnated by intercourse with serpents. Aristotle calls the male, which impregnates the female, by the name of Zemiris, and says that there is a difference between them, the morena being spotted and weakly, while the zamyris is all of one color and hardy, and has teeth which project beyond the mouth. In northern Gaul all the morena have on the right jaw seven spots which bear a resemblance to the constellation of the septentriones, and are of a gold color, shining as long as the animal is alive, but disappearing as soon as it is dead. Vadius Polio, a Roman of equestrian rank, and one of the friends of the late Emperor Augustus, found a method of exercising his cruelty by means of this animal, for he caused such slaves, as had been condemned by him, to be thrown into preserves filled with morene, not that the land animals would not have fully sufficed for this purpose, but because he could not see a man so aptly torn to pieces all at once by any other kind of animal. It is said that these fish are driven to madness by the taste of vinegar. Their skin is exceedingly thin, while that of the eel, on the other hand, is much thicker. Various informs us that formerly the children of the Roman citizens, while wearing the praetexta, were flogged with eel-skins, and that for this reason no pecuniary penalty could by law be inflicted upon them. CHAPTER forty: VARIOUS KINDS OF FLATFISH There is another kind of flatfish which, instead of bones, has cartilage, such, for instance, as the raya, the pastanea, the squatina, the torpedo, and those which under their respective Greek names are known as the ox, the lamia, the eagle, and the frog. In this number also the squally ought to be included, though they are not flatfish. Aristotle was the first to call these fish by the one generic name of selake, which he has given them. We, however, have no mode of distinguishing them, unless, indeed, we choose to call them the cartilaginous fishes. All these fish are carnivorous, and feed lying on their backs, just as dolphins do, as already noticed. While the other fishes, too, are oviparous, this one kind, with the exception of that known as the sea-frog, is viviparous, like the cetacea. Chapter 41. The Echinaeus and its uses in enchantments. There is a very small fish that is in the habit of living among the rocks, and is known as the Echinaeus. 
It is believed that when this has attached itself to the keel of a ship, its progress is impeded, and that it is from this circumstance that it takes its name. For this reason also it has a disgraceful repute, as being employed in love-filters, and for the purpose of retarding judgments and legal proceedings, evil properties, which are only compensated by a single merit that it possesses. It is good for staying fluxes of the womb in pregnant women, and preserves the fetus up to birth. It is never used, however, for food. Aristotle is of opinion that this fish has feet, so strong is the resemblance by reason of the form and position of the fins. Musianius speaks of a murex of larger size than the purple, with a head that is neither rough nor round, and the shell of which is single, and falls in folds on either side. He tells us also that some of these creatures once attached themselves to a ship freighted with children of noble birth, who were being sent by Periander for the purpose of being castrated, and that they stopped its course in full sail, and he further says that the shellfish which did this service are duly honoured in the temple of Venus, at Canidos. Trebius Niger says that this fish is a foot in length, and that it can retard the course of vessels five fingers in thickness, besides which it has another peculiar property. When preserved in salt and applied, it is able to draw up gold which has fallen into a well, however deep it may happen to be. CHAPTER Forty Two: FISHES WHICH CHANGE THEIR COLOR The mena changes its white color, and in summer becomes swarthy. The physis also changes its color, and while at other times it is white, in spring it is parti-colored. This last is the only fish that builds itself a nest. It makes it of seaweed, and there deposits its eggs. Chapter 43. Fishes which fly above the water. The sea-swallow. The fish that shines in the night. The horned fish. The sea-dragon. The sea-swallow, being able to fly, bears a strong resemblance to the bird of that name. The sea-kite, too, flies as well. There is a fish that comes up to the surface of the sea, known from the following circumstance as the lantern-fish, thrusting from its mouth a tongue that shines like fire. It emits a most brilliant light on calm nights. Another fish, which from its horns has received its name, raises them nearly a foot and a half above the surface of the water. The sea-dragon, again, if caught and thrown on the sand, works out a hole for itself with its muzzle, with the most wonderful celerity. CHAPTER Forty Four, FISHES WHICH HAVE NO BLOOD fishes known as soft-fish. The varieties of fish which we shall now mention are those which have no blood. There are three kinds. First, those which are known as soft. Next, those which have thin crusts. And lastly, those which are enclosed in hard shells. The soft-fish are the loligo, the sapia, the polypus, and others of a similar nature. These last have the head between the feet and the belly, and have all of them eight feet. In the sapia and the loliga, two of these feet are very long and rough, and by means of these they lift the food to their mouth, and attach themselves to places in the sea, as though with an anchor. The others act as so many arms, by means of which they seize their prey. CHAPTER Forty Five: THE SAPIA, THE LOLIGO, THE SCALLOP The loligo is also able to dart above the surface of the water, and the scallop does the same, just like an arrow as it were. In the sapia, the male is parti-coloured, blacker than the female, and more courageous. If the female is struck with a fish-spear, the male comes to her aid. But the female, the instant the male is struck, takes to flight. Both of them, as soon as ever they find themselves in danger of being caught, discharge a kind of ink, which with them is in place of blood, and thus, darkening the water, take to flight. CHAPTER Forty Six: THE POLYPUS There are numerous kinds of polypi. The land polypus is larger than that of the sea. 
They all of them use their arms as feet and hands, and in coupling they employ the tail, which is forked and sharp. The polypus has a sort of passage in the back, by which it lets in and discharges water, and which it shifts from side to side, sometimes carrying it on the right and sometimes on the left. It swims obliquely with the head on one side, which is of surprising hardness while the animal is alive, being puffed out with air. In addition to this they have cavities dispersed throughout the claws, by means of which, through suction, they can adhere to objects, which they hold with the head upwards so tightly that they cannot be torn away. They cannot attach themselves, however, to the bottom of the sea, and their retentive powers are weaker in the larger ones. These are the only soft fish that come on dry land, and then only where the surface is rugged. A smooth surface they will not come near. They feed upon the flesh of shellfish, the shells of which they can easily break in the embrace of their arms. Hence it is that their retreat may be easily detected by the pieces of shell which lie before it. Although in other respects this is looked upon as a remarkably stupid kind of animal, so much so that it will swim towards the hand of a man, to a certain extent in its own domestic matters it manifests considerable intelligence. It carries its prey to its home, and after eating all the flesh, throws out the debris, and then pursues such small fish as may chance to swim towards them. It also changes its color according to the aspect of the place where it is, and more especially when it is alarmed. The notion is entirely unfounded that it gnaws its own arms, for it is from the congers that this mischance befalls it, but it is no other than true that its arms shoot forth again like the tail in the colotus and the lizard. Chapter 47 the nautilus or sailing polypus among the most remarkable curiosities is the animal which has the name of nautilus or as some people call it the pompilos lying with the head upwards it rises to the surface of the water raising itself little by little while by means of a certain conduit in its body it discharges all the water and this being got rid of like so much bilge water as it were it finds no difficulty in sailing along then, extending backwards its two front arms, it stretches out between them a membrane of marvellous thinness, which acts as a sail spread out to the wind, while with the rest of its arms it paddles along below, steering itself with its tail in the middle, which acts as a rudder. Thus does it make its way along the deep, mimicking the appearance of a light Liburnian bark, while, if anything chances to cause it alarm, in an instant it draws in the water and sinks to the bottom. Chapter 48. The Various Kinds of Polypi, Their Shrewdness Belonging to the genus of polypi is the animal known as the ozena, being so called from the peculiarly strong smell exhaled by the head, in consequence of which the murene pursue it with the greatest eagerness. The polypi keep themselves concealed for two months in the year. They do not live beyond two years and always die of consumption, the females even sooner, and mostly after bringing forth. I must not omit here the observations which L. Lucullus, the proconsul of Betica, made with reference to the polypus, and which Trebius Niger, one of his suite, has published. He says that it is remarkably fond of shellfish, and that these, the moment that they feel themselves touched by it, close their valves and cut off the feelers of the polypus, thus making a meal at the expense of the plunderer. Shellfish are destitute of sight, and indeed all other sensations but those which warn them of hunger and the approach of danger. Hence it is that the polypus lies in ambush till the fish opens its shell, immediately upon which it places within it a small pebble, taking care at the same time to keep it from touching the body of the animal, lest by making some movement it should chance to eject it. Having made itself thus secure, it attacks its prey, and draws out the flesh, while the other tries to contract itself, but all in vain in consequence of the separation of the shell, 
thus affected by the insertion of the wedge. So great is the instinctive shrewdness in animals that are otherwise quite remarkable for their lumpish stupidity. In addition to the above, the same author states that there is not an animal in existence that is more dangerous for its powers of destroying a human being when in the water. Embracing his body, it counteracts his struggles, and draws him under with its feelers and its numerous suckers, when, as often as the case, it happens to make an attack upon a shipwrecked mariner or a child. If, however, the animal is turned over, it loses all its power, for when it is thrown upon the back, the arms open of themselves. The other particulars, which the same author has given, appear still more closely to border upon the marvellous. At Cartea, in the preserves there, a polypus was in the habit of coming from the sea to the pickling tubs that were left open, and devouring the fish laid in salt there, for it is quite astonishing how eagerly all sea animals follow even the very smell of salted condiments, so much so that it is for this reason that the fishermen take care to rub the inside of the wicker fish-kipes with them. At last, by its repeated thefts and immoderate depredations, it drew down upon itself the wrath of the keepers of the works. Palisades were placed before them, but these the polypus managed to get over by the aid of a tree, and it was only caught at last by calling in the assistance of trained dogs, which surrounded it at night, as it was returning to its prey, upon which the keepers, awakened by the noise, were struck with alarm at the novelty of the sight presented. First of all, the size of the polypus was enormous beyond all conception, and then it was covered all over with dried brine and exhaled a most dreadful stench. Who could have expected to find a polypus there, or could have recognized it as such under these circumstances? They really thought that they were joining battle with some monster, for at one instant it would drive off the dogs by its horrible fumes and lash at them with the extremities of its feelers, while at another it would strike them with its stronger arms, giving blows with so many clubs as it were, and it was only with the greatest difficulty that it could be dispatched with the aid of a considerable number of three-pronged fish-spears. The head of this animal was shown to Lucullus. It was in size as large as a cask of fifteen amphorae, and had a beard, to use the expression of Trabius himself, which could hardly be encircled with both arms, full of knots, like those upon a club, and thirty feet in length. The suckers, or calicules, as large as an urn, resembled a basin in shape, while the teeth again were of a corresponding largeness. Its remains, which were carefully preserved as a curiosity, weighed seven hundred pounds. The same author also informs us that specimens of the sapia and the loligo have been thrown up on the same shores of a size fully as large. In our own seas the loligo is sometimes found five cubits in length, and the sapia two. These animals do not live beyond two years. CHAPTER forty nine: THE SAILING NOPLIUS Mucianus also relates that he had seen in the Propontis another curious resemblance to a ship in full sail. There is a shellfish, he says, with a keel, just like that of the vessel which we know by the name of Acatium, with the poop curving inwards, and a prow with the beak attached. In this shellfish there lies concealed also an animal known as the Nopleus, which bears a strong resemblance to the sapia, and only adopts the shellfish as the companion of its pastimes. There are two modes, he says, which it adopts in sailing. When the sea is calm, the voyager hangs down its arms and strikes the water with a pair of oars, as it were, but if, on the other hand, the wind invites, it extends them, employing them by way of a helm, and turning the mouth of the shell to the wind. The pleasure experienced by the shellfish is that of carrying the other, while the amusement of the nopleus consists in steering, and thus at the same moment is an instinctive joy felt by these two creatures, devoid as they are of all sense, unless indeed a natural antipathy to man, 
for it is a well-known fact that to see them thus sailing along is a bad omen, and that it is portentous of misfortune to those who witness it. End of section 31